0: Let's pray. Uh, my Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this extraordinary part of the Bible. But most of all, Father, we thank you for your extraordinary Son who humbled himself and showed us what it means to be great in your kingdom. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us the attitude of Jesus, that you would do the work on my proud heart tonight, that you would do the work on each of our proud hearts, that we would be humble before you and servants of other people. And uh, I just pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Uh, well, as many of you would know, I went to boarding school as a kid. And well, as through my teenage years through high school. And, you know, I don't know, I've turned out relatively okay. But, um, but one of the, one, I've got to say, because most people think that you end up strange if you go to boarding school. And I've only ended up a little bit strange, I think. But um, it's true that uh, one of the nicest things I've got to say about finishing Boarding school was actually being able to choose the people who I lived with. Uh, that may seem strange to you. You got to, well, you didn't get to choose to live with your family, perhaps, but for six years I had no choice but to live in pretty close proximity to 980 other blokes. Right? We lived on a on a on a on a big sort of property, and up until year 11, picture this we slept in rooms of 50 per room right up until the age that I was 17. And in year 12, you got your own room, but up until then, you had to uh, sleep in a room with 50 other guys, and you had no choice. So you'd rock up to school on the first day, and you'd look at your locker and your bed, and there was your name, and then there was the guy who was sleeping next to you, and you had no other choice about this. And for the rest of the year, that's where you were, with 50 other blokes in the same room. Could you imagine the smell, ladies? But... Um, but it, it was a nice when I left school to be able to actually choose the people that I lived with. And uh, the person I chose to live with at that stage was my dad. That was great. We'd, uh, dad and I hadn't lived together properly since I was five. And so it was a really special time, actually, to be able to choose to, to live with him. But um, we all make choices about our friends, uh, don't we? Uh, we may not choose our family, but we do choose our friends. We we choose who we're going to have around for a meal. Uh, we choose who we're going to actually talk to after church tonight. Uh, we talk. We actually choose the people that we're not going to speak to uh, after church tonight. The people that we might avoid. Uh, we often make choices about our friends. And you really don't think about that until that choice is taken away from you like it was when I was sort of uh, 12 years old and I was thrust into boarding school. And, and the thing about being in boarding school, it's, it's a lot like church really, as you're thrust together with a whole heap of people that are, are sort of very different to you. And the thing about boarding school is you eat together and you go to school together and you sleep in the same uh, room together. Uh, you do everything Together, it's 24-7. It's not 9 till 3, it's 9 till 9 the next morning. And then you do it over and over and over again. And it's pretty hard in boarding school to avoid each other. You just can't because you're there all the time. And we didn't choose to get thrown together, but all of us did. And you know what's very important in that environment? It's very important in that environment They actually learn to get along with each other. It's very important. Because you can't actually hide anything from each other. There's no way to hide. There's no way to hide any of your vices because people know exactly what you like. There's no way to hide any of your virtues. People know the good things about you. Um, and I've got to say, boarding school, when it was great, it was fantastic. It's sort of like hanging out with your mates all the time, which is really, really good. But can I tell you, when it wasn't good, it was awful. Because the thing is, is that when, when you didn't get on, you lived with this not only this tension between nine and three, but you lived in this tension, well, twenty four seven, and there was this like cloud hanging over you, sort of like the cloud that's been hovering over Sydney for the last three days and doesn't seem to want to move, of just that tension that between you. And that makes it makes it even more real when you read passages and challenges like Paul just made for us when you think of an environment like that. So, so come to verse three and what. Paul's sort of challenging us with tonight, and he says this, you think of that environment and he says, in humility, consider others, church, as more important than yourselves. And everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And when I thought about that situation, those words take on a whole new kind of meaning, and you realise just how hard those words are to live out aren't they? Because pride's pretty easy to spot uh, in in yourself and in other people. Pride's the opposite to humility. Pride's the opposite of considering other people's needs before your own. And, And some pride, isn't it, can be fairly harmless. You know, the sort of pride of sort of taking the best selfie you can of yourself, you know, so that you can... Post it on Facebook just to show your awesome life to your awesome friends. You know, that's that's sort of a little, That's fairly harmless pride. The selfie, I think. But then there's that really devastating pride. Sometimes, then when you think that life is all about us, and it's all about me. It's all about what I think. It's all about what I deserve. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I need. It's all about what I would deserve. What I would like to do. And so to consider someone else's needs as more important than your own? Wow, that's hard. To consider, now I'm not pointing at people in particular, but what this means for a church is to consider that person as more important than you and to consider the person over there as more important than you. This is what Paul's saying. And the person up the back there as more important than you. And that person, and that person, and that person are all more important than you. Not, not the person that you want to go on holidays with. <laughs> they're easy to like. Not, not the person that you, you, you can't wait to run up to and talk to after church because they're your bestie. That's, that's easy. No, the, the person that's more important than you is the person who's caused you grief. The person that you find awkward and you'd just rather not talk to, in fact. It's that person that Paul says is more important than you. Now, there's lots about the Christian life that's pretty hard. I find being diligent in prayer hard. I find continually being bold for Jesus in the face of people who don't like him. I find that hard. But of all the things there are in the Christian life, to consider other people better than yourself and more important than yourself. Now, that's about as hard as it gets, isn't it? And Paul knows it's tough. You know know the reason why we know that that's tough? Because he talks about it in the Bible. If this was easy, if this was something that we did naturally, if this was something that was optional, then Paul wouldn't talk about it. But he does. And he tells us how it is that in humility we will consider other people better than ourselves. And how do we do that? Well, it's as we look at Jesus. Now, I've got to say, this is a pretty tricky talk to give. And I'll tell you why. I was reading a book this week that, um, that Phil got me onto a while ago. I think uh, it's called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. Can I say, if you want to have a nice, relaxing week, don't read a book on humility. It's like destroyed me, right? And it did. And he said this, and I think this is exactly right, that if you're a Christian, what you need to say about yourself is that I'm a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. Or I'm a proud woman pursuing humility by the grace of God. Because which of us could stand up here and say, I- I'm humble. I- I've reached humility. <laughs> you wouldn't have reached humility. And so can I say that I think in many ways I'm totally unqualified to give this talk. And that is not false humility, which is the worst kind of pride. You know when someone says, you say you've done a good, you've done a good job and they go, oh, shucks, you know. And really, they're bursting inside with pride, but they're sort of pretending to be humble. That's the worst kind of pride. That wasn't my week. Can I say that as I read this passage, and as I looked some of my family in the eye, I realised just how profoundly selfish I am in many, many ways. And can I say that I found this passage extraordinarily helpful in trying to deal with some of the ways that I'm really selfish. And so I, find, I, I hope you find it really helpful. Because if we're a group of people, if we're a group of proud people who are trying to be humbled together by the grace of God, then that's a great group of people to be a part of, isn't it? And I think when Paul heard about what was going on in Philippi, he realised that because of their pride, they were f- finding it hard to serve each other humbly. And so he writes this part of the letter. And he says, do you want to make an old man happy who's in jail? Now, if an old man in jail said, would you do something to make me happy? What would you say? Of course, you couldn't say no to an old man in jail making me happy. Well, this is what Paul asked for. He asked for this. Um, Have a look at verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. He says to this little church, he said, if then... There is any encouragement in Christ. If you have any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit that you're united together, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, brothers and sisters, sharing the same feelings, focusing on the one goal. And how are we united in Christ? Well, it's if we do this. Look at verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. everyone should look out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others and As I read that, I think well yeah but but how i've got to say it was profoundly depressing, considering some of the ways of how I'm selfish this week How do I actually get out of some of that pride that leads to selfishness and and become more humble Well, Paul says. Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus. And, uh, but I still went, but how? <laughs> and um, what Paul does is he reminds us who Jesus is in his, all of his power, and then he reminds us of what he did, and then he says, be like him. So I'm going to remind us who Jesus is, what he did, and how that encourages us to be like him. Now, Americans, they, uh, they love rags to riches stories, yeah? Yeah, who's seen the movie Lincoln yet? Right, classic American rags to riches story. Abraham Lincoln, born in a log cabin, rises to perhaps be one of the great American presidents. Right, rags to riches. Um, Lenore Simons, my wife. Right, born in humble Concord West. Right, <laughs> now living in the palatial splendor of a pastor's house in Carlton. Right, rags, <laughs> not quite. Uh, yeah, riches to rags, perhaps. Because the divine story, though, is not rags to riches. It's riches to rags, isn't it? It's a movement from glory for Jesus down to shame and obscurity. That's what he's talking about. Because at first, Paul reminds us, you remember, don't you, just who Jesus is. Um, have a look at verse 6. With me, this is what Paul says. Paul says, "Your attitude be the same as Christ Jesus, who, existing in the very form of God." Now, I'll tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that Jesus was like God. It means that Jesus is God. So, to be in the form of God means that He is God. Uh, we're very good in our society at sniffing out a fake, uh, and so it's not like Jesus was up in heaven and he was sort of pretending to be God. Some people believe that Jesus was sort of not quite God, or is half God, or is a demi-God. That's not what he's saying. It's Jesus always has, and always will be, in the very form of God. He is fully God. He made everything. There is nothing in this world that exists apart from Jesus. There is no one who breathes, who laughs, who smiles, who has hope, apart from Jesus. There is not... a human being that's been born. There is not a mountain that exists apart from the work of Jesus. I mean, such is the power of Jesus being in the form of God that when Isaiah even saw the glory of God in the temple, what did he do? He fell down face down because when a sinful person is faced with the, the picture of an unimaginably glorified God, someone who is in the very form of God, he, we couldn't even look at it. It's impossible to underestimate the power that Jesus has as being God himself. And then, Paul says this remarkable statement. Have, have a look at the rest of chapter verse 6. He says, even though he's in the form of God, Jesus did not consider his equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. As Jesus thought about what it meant to be God he realised that what it meant to be God was to not use the power and glory and authority that he had as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to use it for himself. He actually realised that being in the form of God meant the exact opposite to that, that he would use the power that he had for other people's interests, not his own. Now, that's weird to us. We don't often see leaders who do that. Uh, For example, do you need to turn on your telly again? to see another leader from another nation whose people are impoverished and can't even eat, and yet here they are driving around in black Mercedes-Benz with all that money, like Robert Mugabe does in Zimbabwe? Or do we need another politician to come forward to say, we need to see another ICAC inquiry where our politicians who are meant to be serving us are instead granting mining leases under the farms of their friends so that they can all make tens of millions of dollars together? using power to your own advantage. Or sports heroes, my former hero, Lance Armstrong, right? Do you know that he used his millions of dollars to sue people who he knew was telling the truth? He used his power to his own advantage. But in, unless we get a little bit too cocky, how often do we use our power to our own advantage? And Jesus could have done that, couldn't he? I mean, Jesus could have stayed in heaven, couldn't he? Imagine the suffering that he would have avoided if Jesus hadn't actually come down to earth. Think about the things that he would have avoided if he'd done that. And it's not as if Jesus... Some people think that this passage means this. It's not as if Jesus thought, I tell you what, I'm God, but I tell you what, I'm going to do something that's not like God. I'm going to go down to earth and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to hum- be humiliated, and I'm going to give myself to other people. And so, when his father said, Jesus, it's time for you to go down to earth, Jesus didn't say, oh, excuse me. It's not, not a very godlike thing to do. It's rather beneath me. No, it's as if, metaphorically speaking, because Jesus didn't have a body yet, it's as if he sat in heaven and he thought about what it meant to be God. And he thought thought about what it meant to be God practically and he realised it meant to give and to humble himself. So practically that's exactly what he did. He considered what it meant to be in the form of God and that's not to use your power for your own advantage and stay in heaven, but to actually use it for the advantage of other people. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? That God would give? Amazing. Amazing. But can you believe still that Jesus did this? Look at verse 7. He did this. Instead of staying in heaven, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a slave, he obeyed his father. In doing what? In taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, that's what Jesus did. Uh, What that means is that Jesus became incarnate. And When we talk about the incarnation, that's what it means. That Jesus, who is fully God for all of eternity took on humanity into himself. And you know how, so incarnation means God becoming a man. And I'll tell you uh, how you remember that. Uh, incarnation, what's the word it's got in the middle? It's got khan in the middle. Now, I'll tell you the way that you remember this. Uh, it's the same as, uh, who likes chili corn khan? Do you like it? Yeah, so you know when you go to the supermarket, right? So you see the chili corn khan. What does the carn stand for? Meat. Right? Chilli with meat. Right? So it's the same root word as incarnation. So the way that you remember what that means is that Jesus took on meat. Right? Jesus became flesh. He became a man. That's what he did. Right? That's what it means, incarnate. God takes on flesh. God takes on meat. God becomes a man. Now you think about that. Doesn't that make Jesus the most humble person who has ever lived? How is it that God could become a man? How is it that the eternal God could actually come into time? I mean, how is it that the timeless God can enter into time? How is it the creator could actually come into his creation? How is it that God, who was worshipped by the angels, could then come and be laughed at and spat upon and ignored and rejected and abused by people like us? How is it that God could live in heaven and then come down and live in poverty on earth? Doesn't that make Jesus the most humble person that's ever lived? And in Jesus doing that, right, he didn't stop being God. Because some people say, well, he was up in heaven and he was God and he sort of stopped being God for a while and he became a man. No, that's not what it's saying. So look at verse 9. I've got to say the Holman translation at this point is really not heaps helpful. Um, which is not a great advertisement for our new Bible, um, but in this passage it's not heaps helpful. Look at verse nine. It says he had come as a man in his external form. Now I tell you what that doesn't mean. It's not saying that Jesus is like a caramel caramelo koala. He, now who likes caramelo koalas, right? Yeah, and the reason why you like them is this, right? You got chocolate on the outside, and then what have you got in the middle? Caramel, right? So chocolate on the outside, caramel in the middle. That Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not man on the outside, God in the middle. So it's not like he's half man and half God. That's not what it's saying. Why? Why do we know that that's not what it's saying? Well, look at verse six. It says that he's been in the form of God. Same phrase for all of eternity. So that means that Jesus is fully God. He has always been fully God. He doesn't stop being fully God, but he also becomes fully man. He adds divinity. To his humanity. He's not a Caramello Koala, right? He's not man on the outside, God in the middle. He's fully God and fully man. Now that's not using your own power to your own advantage, isn't it? God becoming a man? I mean, think about it. I remember when I first went into gospel ministry, I remember when someone at my work said this. They said, well, I guess your goal would be to climb the ladder, right? So I guess your goal would be to be to run your own church, to be the senior minister of a church. And I can remember at the time I thought, I don't want to be that. Where, where's Phil? Where are you, Phil? Is he out the back? He's being the oh, is he? I mean, who'd want to be the senior minister of a church? Right? That's crazy. I mean, think about it. This is what I thought at the time. What sort of fruit loop would want to do that? Right? The pressure, the responsibility, having to put up assistant system ministers like me. I mean, imagine that. Who'd want it? But I remember that my work colleagues at the time, they thought, "No, you climb the ladder, because if you climb the ladder, you, what do you get? You get power, you get prestige, you get perks, you get grafts, you grasp after stuff, you take stuff, because that's what you do with power, right? And it's why people are so cynical about our politicians. Um, I've got to say, I'm less cynical about our politicians than other people. I'll tell you why, because my uncle was 16 years in, the, in parliament in Western Australia. So you know when people pay out politicians, it's sort of personal for me, because uh, he's my uncle. Um, and so I'm sort of slightly less cynical than most people. But I've got to say that we, it's right that we get cynical in that often, so often people use power to their own advantage, to fill their own pockets. And yet, that's not Jesus. He shows us what real greatness is all about. But surely it was humble enough, don't you think, for Jesus to become a man? Surely the King of kings and the Lord of lords becoming a man, surely that's enough. Well, no, that's not enough. He went further than that. I mean, he couldn't bring himself lower, could he? Well, yes, he could. Look at verse 8. He said he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. I mean, how is it that Jesus, he not only became a man, became a, a Obedient to death. So not only did he go from being in glory to being born in a shed, not only did he go from being worshipped by angels to being laughed at and spat upon by self-righteous, unthankful, unrepentant, proud sinners like me, but he came down and we did it continually. And how did I respond to the humble God who made himself a man and died for me? I murdered him. And so did you. And not only that, Jesus is so humble that he allowed us to murder him. Those proud, selfish, unrepentant people. He allowed us to do that to him, to allow him to die for our sins. I mean, how humble is that? I mean, the other day, Lenore asked me, she was cleaning up in the kitchen, and she was uh, doing the dishes. And Lenore asked me, can you come in and help? And I, you know, I just couldn't get off the couch. And God went to death. And in dying, Jesus was so humble that not only did he allow us to murder him for our sins, but he allowed proud people like me who have ignored him for most of my life to then receive the benefits of his death. I mean, how humble is that? Do you think you could get any more humble than that? Well, yes, it actually does get more humble than that because Jesus didn't just die. He died on a cross. Did you see that? He humbled himself even to death on a cross. Now, you know, back in the time when Jesus died, that crucifixion was the... The most favourite way for the Romans to kill people, and that's the way that they punished the lower classes and slaves, and especially uh, incredibly uh, bad criminals. And what they did is that in that period, you know, that 3,000 people were killed by the Romans by crucifixion. Uh, and just in case you're wondering how horrible that was, it was always public, they were always naked. And the way that they deterred people, the Romans, from actually doing anything wrong is that as you were walking into Rome, they actually had crosses with people still slung up there, dead, lining the streets as you walked into Rome, crucified people. So as you walked in the city and you saw crucified man after crucified man after crucified man after crucified man, after crucified man the message was if you muck up in our city... That's what's going to happen to you. Do you reckon you took notice? I'm sure it got people's attention. And you know it could take days to die as you hung up on the cross and as you slowly, naked, suffocated to death. Um, Jesus died before that happened. But imagine how humiliating it would be. It would be like if we went to town hall station tomorrow and the government decided that they'd put an electric chair on the town hall steps. And they'd strip a man naked and they'd put him up on the chair and they'd slowly electrocute him over three days as we walked past with our morning coffee going off to work. How humiliating is that? And do you know that it was so humiliating that in polite Roman society, the word cross, you wouldn't say that at dinner if you were with friends. It was just, just, you just don't talk about cross. Don't mention the cross. And yet Jesus humbly and willingly, and for proud people like us, went there. Now, there's never been a leader in the history of the world like that, has there? I mean, how much is that not using your power to your own advantage? It's incredible. Now, do you think in all of that, do you think the father didn't notice? Do you think that the father wasn't pleased with what Jesus did? Oh, absolutely he was pleased with what Jesus did. And so he put Jesus back into his rightful place after he did that. So look at verse 9. This is what God did next. It said, For this reason, that is, because Jesus humbled himself, God highly exalted him. What that means is that by the power of the Spirit, three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him the name that is above every name. Uh, 40 days later, after Jesus had shown himself to be risen from the dead, he then ascended him into heaven, and Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And that means if, if we were to see Jesus right now, the very human Jesus, who is God, we would see him ruling and reigning as we do in the passages in Revelation, sitting on a throne, ruling as the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all people, men and women, rich and poor, everyone. The Father has exalted Jesus back to that place. Why? Do you see verse 9? Because he humbled himself. And what's the rest of verse 9 and 10 say? And he gave him the name, that is Jesus, that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus now, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, in that day, the greatest name that existed in Jesus' day was Nero. Uh, Nero was the emperor of Rome, and so if you went... Uh, somewhere, if you, uh, whatever uh, sort of festival was going on, whatever event was going on, Nero would be declared to be Lord and Saviour. I mean, if you were going to the opening of the Parliament, if you were going to the State of Origin, or in those days, what do they call it? The Gladiator Battles, right? Nero would be proclaimed as Lord and Saviour. His name was above every name. And yet Paul had the audacity to say, do you know what? There's a name above every, that name. There's a man actually that's above that man. And when he comes back again, this Jesus, every knee is going to bow before this Jesus. Nero, the great emperor of Rome, will get on his knees and bow before this king. Everyone who's now in heaven, that is the people who are joyfully waiting for Jesus to return, they will bow the knee to Jesus. The people who are on earth, there will be people on earth who will be here when Jesus comes again. They'll bow the knee to Jesus. And there'll be people who are under the earth who will bow the knee before Jesus. They are the ones who are in Hades, awaiting the eternal torment of hell for rejecting the God who loves them and made them. And on that day, they will bow the knee to Jesus. Everyone will bow the knee before Jesus. And so Paul says, because everyone's going to bow the knee before Jesus one day, then we should bow the knee now. So what does he say in verse 11? He says, "In every tongue, what should we do? We should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because one day every knee will bow before Jesus, even Nero of Rome. And so we should confess it now. because the question is and if you're investigating Christianity, this is a strong claim, but this is what the Bible is saying, is that it's not a question of, will you bend the knee before Jesus?" It's how you will bend the knee before Jesus. Because will you do it gladly now for your salvation, or will you do it unwillingly on the last day when He comes again? Will you do it today as a friend of Jesus, or will you bow the knee before Jesus on the last day as a foe of Him? Will you bow the knee now for your own joy, or will you bow the knee in the future? For your shame. Now that's a strong claim, yeah? That every knee will bow. Now I've got to say, if one of our let's let's just name it, right? New South Wales politics isn't going great, is it? There's just a few corrupt ones amongst them. Let's just say one of those MPs walked in who was ripped off our state. And he, he, he sits down in, in this seat, the pride of place next to Rob Wolf, which would be the place of honour in our congregation. <laughs> Don't push it, he says, yeah. So he'd, sit, sit, he'd insist to sit next to Rob. And all of us know what this corrupt politician has done. And he would say, I deserve your honour and you should call me whatever his title is, uh, the honourable whatever it is. I've got to say that if I saw that corrupt politician standing there and he asked me to sort of bow the knee to him, or call him the honourable, I have to say um, <laughs> that's that's actually a tall order. I've got to say, because you're not very honourable. But if you have Jesus, who is in very nature God, and yet He lowered Himself down to here to become a man, and then He lowered Himself down to here. To die, and then he lowered himself down to here to die on a cross for you, a humble servant king. And that humble king says to you, Bow the knee before me who died for you. How much easier it is to bow the knee to that sort of king, the servant king, the good king. Every knee will bow, but gee, he's a good king to bow to. And you know where this. Drew, can you chuck this up? There's often a question of, is is one day every knee going to bow before Jesus gladly? Because some people will teach that one day every knee will bow before Jesus and everyone will end up in heaven. Is that what this passage is saying? That everyone will gladly say that Jesus is Lord on the last day? No, because that phrase, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, is taken from Isaiah chapter 45 and it says this, that not everyone will bow the knee willingly to Jesus. Um, Have a look at verses 22 to 25. The writer of Isaiah says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And he's speaking for God. He says, For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. And on the last day when this Messiah comes, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said to me, righteousness and strength is only in the Lord. But all who have enraged against him, do you see this? Everyone has said, ah, I just can't be bothered with God. What will happen? He will come to him and be put to shame. All the descendants of Israel will be justified and find glory through the Lord. Everyone will bow the knee before Jesus. The question is, will you bow the knee gladly... Or will you bow the knee because you have to? But everyone will bow the knee. Now, but this passage isn't about our response to Jesus. It's about his example. And do you know that, um, uh, you know when we read that other passage before and the disciples came to Jesus? And did you feel sympathetic for them? When, you know, they're really excited about Jesus being in glory. And they said, look, when you're in heaven, Jesus, who's going to have the really good places? Who's going to be able to sit on your right and left in glory? And Jesus, like he normally is, he is very patient with them. And he says, look, come with me. So he calls them over to the side and he says to them, what does he say to them? He says, you know, those rulers of the Gentiles that you hang around with like Augustus and Nero and guys like that, they lorded it over people. And they use their power like our politicians for their own advantage. But not you. And he says to them, do you want to be great? And do you know what I found very strange about that? Is that Jesus doesn't criticize the disciples for wanting to be great. He doesn't. But he says, do you want to be great? Well, be what? Be a servant. Be a slave of all. That's what it means to be great in God's kingdom. Now, have you seen any examples of true greatness lately? Um, I think you have. I think whenever you've seen someone use their own power, not to their own advantage, but to the other people's advantage, you've seen true greatness. For example, it's the mum who gets up in the morning and gets the whole family ready. This might include you younger people. (laughs) And then gets ready for her hectic day. And she's already done everything for everyone else. That's greatness. It's the dad who, after a crazy hard day at work, doesn't just come home and want to lie on the couch like I'm tempted to do and sometimes do, but actually doesn't sit on the couch and works out what his family needs and does it. It's the young teenage bloke who helps out at home. In fact, who does anything at home. Right. <laughs> That's greatness. That's greatness. In the kingdom. (laughs) Men, if you do anything at home, that's great. If, If your mum asks you to do something and you decide, I'm going to get off that PlayStation and I'm going to do and I'm going to serve my mum and serve my dad, that is greatness in God's kingdom. It's the older couple in our morning church, and I won't name them, who have built a granny flat out the back of their house and they don't charge rent for it and they let people to stay there for free and it's always full. Because they want to help people who are down on their luck and are finding things hard. That's how they've used the extra land on their property. That's greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Not using your power for your own interests, but using it for the interests of others. I want to apply this in a few weird ways that you may not have thought of about not using the power that you've got for your own advantage, but using it for the advantage of others. Here's one way I want to apply it. If you're at school, who here is at school? Right. Yeah, cool. Now. Some of you are popular, right? Some of you are the cool kids. Right? I tell you what you can do. You know when you're the cool kids, that's not even what you say now, is it? But anyway. You know when you, whatever name you've got for that, which shows that I don't know what I'm talking about. But you know when you're popular, is that that's power, yeah? Because people hang around you, they like to be with you, they like hanging around with you. You've got social power. Now, when you're at school, how can you use that power? You can use it for your own interests. In other words, you can do stuff for yourself. You can make yourself look good. You can make the group do what you want to do. Or perhaps, if you weren't using your power for your own advantage, but using it for others, what would you do? You'd actually find people, say, the less popular kids, and you'd make sure that they joined your group. You would use your popularity to ensure that people aren't excluded, but they're included. You wouldn't look to your own interests, but you'd look to the interests of others. That's this passage. Or another couple, a young a couple I knew when I was younger, they decided that the money that they got, that they were, the standard of income they had was enough. And so they decided that every pay rise that they got, that every amount of money that they earned after this amount, that every extra bit of savings that they wouldn't use it for themselves to have a bigger house and a nicer car and better holidays. They, they wouldn't use that power they had to their own advantage but actually to the interests of others. And so every cent above the income that they had in that year for the rest of their life, they determined they would give away to the prospering of the gospel and to the alleviation of suffering amongst the poor. Now that is greatness in the kingdom of heaven. How about in our church? Uh, next week we're going to have a bit of an expo. So next week uh, after church we're going to have little Asian noodle boxes and uh, we're going to go out there and there's going to be all sorts of different stalls with different people who lead up different ministries and they're going to be talking about the ways that they serve and the opportunities that we have to serve other people. The great ones are the kingdoms in the kingdom are the servants and so that will be a great opportunity for us to work out our place in serving like Jesus did, humbly serving like Jesus did. But I'll tell you about another way we, we can serve is that as a congregation, do you know that we're part of a larger parish? There's five congregations. And so God in his goodness has made this easy for us because I can't think what's best for Church in the Bank or, what's, or, or Jace can't think what's best for Bexley North or, J, or James can't think what's best for Bexley we can, or Phil can't think what's best for Carlton. We can't think what's best for one congregation over another No, not at all. We can't think what's best for one family over what's best for another family. Do you know how our church would work really well? Is if we said as church in the bank, we won't look out for our own interests, but we're going to look out for the interests of the other congregations. And can I say that you guys do that? All of you that serve in Sunday school and youth ministry, it's amazing. If we were just looking out for our own interests, we'd stop teaching Sunday school I mean, we don't have kids. Well, I do, but thanks for teaching them. Yeah? But all of us, we don't have kids. We, we don't. We don't need to worry about other congregations and what they're doing. We'll just do what's doing here. We're, we'll make this congregation fantastic. We'll just care about church and the bank. Not at all. We're not going to use the the what we have just for our own interests. We're going to use it for the interests of others. What's best for every other congregation, and it's beautiful when you guys do that. And my final challenge is this: socially tonight. Go and talk to someone that you wouldn't normally talk to. Don't use your social power to your own advantage. Consider others more important than yourselves. And how do you do that? Well, you go and talk to them. That's the attitude that Jesus gave to us. Let's pray. Um, Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you, through your Son, the Lord Jesus, teach us to not consider our own interests, but to consider the interests of others. Father we thank you for the example example of Jesus that though he was in the very form of God and is in the form of God that he humbled himself and he became a man and incredibly he died and incredibly he died on a cross and now you've exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. Father we thank you for your son who is such a servant who humbles himself And Father, when we look at the cross, it's impossible for us to be proud. And so I pray, Father, that you would get rid of the pride in our hearts that causes us to think that life is all about us. And you would help us to humbly serve other people to the glory of God the Father. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.